we started uh, this whole thing called the way of life. And we'll keep, like, again, stepping into this. And we started it uh, with eating and drinking, or, or what we call just the table, the practice of the table. It says in the book of Luke, uh, we're told how Jesus, what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save. He came as a ransom for many, as a servant of all. And then it repeats the phrase, how did he come? And it says, well, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So we want to pay attention. Uh, I believe I quoted this last week. Arthur Bowers says, you literally can't get through the book of Luke without getting hungry. Like if you don't get through the readings and teachings of Jesus, if, if you read through those and you are not hungry by the end of them, you're not paying attention is what he says. There's something about the way Jesus comes. I'm just sort of recapping what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. That the medium is the message. That, the, that it's not just the thing that's being delivered. We all know right now politically, right, how often a bunch of people who, who in the name of wanting to love and be grace-filled people, they're not paying attention to how this thing is coming. They may be paying attention to the things Jesus said, but not how he does them. And so we want to be people who are practicing this. Which James K.A. Smith reminds us, um, that we are uh, people, so often what causes transformation in us is by reordering our desires, right? He says, you are what you love. And so the way you cultivate your love is you begin to practice things, just raw information, right? Followers of Jesus have more access, everyone has more access to more information, more theology, more sermons, more apps, more he, she, they read truth than like ever before, and it's, it's not necessarily transforming our hearts and lives. How are we practicing the way of Jesus? You could do six weeks on devotions around Christian hospitality and eating, drinking, and the power of the table and never sit down with someone and eat or build a rhythm that says every single week at this time we always eat. I'm so burnt out and I'm tired and I'm stressed out. Well, in, in a couple months we're going to take four weeks and talk about Sabbath. And how if you just, any of you Sabbath regularly? Like you just built in that it, every hand would go up eventually. I was, we're followers of Jesus. Well, how do we roll? Oh, we stop once a, once a week and we turn everything off, phones in the closet, and we remind ourselves uh, that the world will keep spinning if we stop producing for a moment. Every single week we pause and remember that all of life is a gift. Every week we we just do that because that's how we roll, because we're followers of Jesus. We want to build a way of life that is rooted in the way of Jesus. That's why we started this series. So I'm really excited about it. So we're now at week three of this series. And I want to talk a little bit about, and it was just perfect that it flew right into Thanksgiving. I want to talk a little bit about celebration. And I want to talk about joy. And I want to talk about cynicism and anxiety. Before I do that, I want to address the fact that my pants are awful right now. Last night, I, uh, we just moved into our new house last night. Thank you to the 15, 20 people who all helped us move. It was amazing. So we got into the house, and it's a long story involving child care and cars and arrangement in the morning and stuff. I won't bore you with, but basically, um, we've been staying at my in-law. So my wife, Corey, went home uh, with the kids and slept at the in-law's house. We're probably going to stay there for another night or two. And uh, I stayed up here in Providence at the house. And I, was, didn't, I didn't originally plan on doing that. So I was like, well, I know I have some clothes laying around and some stuff that was boxed up over the last six months that was sitting in a storage space. I don't know if you've ever done that, like had stuff in a storage space and then took it out. First of all, you're like, wow, there's some things I need to throw out. Two, uh, I have a, a, clearly a, a moderate dust allergy. So I put everything on this morning, and I, I like couldn't stop sneezing. And all I had were these like painter pants on. And thankfully, Evan St. Martin let me borrow his shirt. Um, all that information was nonsense, and you didn't need any of it. So let's go. <laughs> if you would, would you stand with me for the reading of the word? <laughs> this is the words of Jesus from John Chapter 15, verse 11, I have told you this. He's talking to his disciples. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you 
my joy might be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Anyone miss Robin Williams? I miss that guy. Like what a smile. I feel like sadly Robin Williams, maybe every generation has this, but it's sort of a totem for our moment right now. Big smile, so much joy, so much depression and anxiety going on. I think of Anthony Bourdain, we think of the stats on antidepressants, they're like up like 65%. 65%. Over the past eight years, Google search rates for anxiety have more than doubled. They are higher this year than they have been in any year since Google searches were first tracked in 2014. So far, it is uh, top for searches for driving anxiety, travel anxiety, separation anxiety, anxiety at work, anxiety at school, anxiety at home. These are the top searches. Americans have also become increasingly terrified of the morning. Searches for anxiety in the morning have risen threefold over the past decade. This is nothing compared with the fear, though, of night. Searches for anxiety at night have risen ninefold. Ninefold. In Rhode Island, we are 10% higher than the national average for anxiety. Many people think that Jesus does not have anything to say. I'm gonna sit down just so I can highlight my my knee hole for you. Trying to bless the people. Many people think Jesus doesn't have anything to say about happiness. We think about who we're gonna turn to. Jesus oftentimes, for whatever reason, is somber. Jesus kind of serious. You're the prophetic, right? Jesus always, to be honest, really reflects a bit of your personality no matter what, correct? You read yourself onto a person like Jesus, onto a, a figure like that when you're reading the stories. He's prophetic. He's angry at injustice all the time. He's zen, right? He's just sort of like, he's like, he might as well have like his legs crossed and kind of always levitating. Like moves through the crowd. Maybe you have like, you know, some like white robed, you know, white Swedish Jesus who's like walking around like some weird image of that, which is always funny for Middle Eastern Jew. Uh, we got all these images of him. Oftentimes I found like, man, I want to learn how to be happy. Let me look to Jesus. I, I, for whatever reason. And, and yet and the, the prophecy about Jesus in the book of Isaiah so in the Old Testament, there's these, there's these writers who are anticipating who the Messiah is going to, what is the Messiah is going to be like? How will we recognize when the, when the one who comes, when God moves in flesh and blood in our community and in our world to, to begin putting things back together? That's what we believe about Jesus. And one of those prophecies says, the Messiah will be anointed with the oil of joy more than all of his companions. My translation would be, he's the happiest person alive. Most full of joy, the most joy-filled person. This was quoted, this text, by the way, all the time in the New Testament. Let's look, uh, turn with me if you have your Bibles to John chapter two. John chapter two. Oh, by the way, I have these books. Um, I posted up on my Instagram story some resources, and I realized I had a couple extra books. So if anybody at some point, preferably not while I'm preaching, but maybe after, if you like some books, this one is Meals with Jesus. This is just really helpful if you want to dig deeper into table fellowship. And then the art of neighboring just provides these really practical ideas, maybe a home group leader or someone, how to go like deeper into making sense of how to have a life formed around neighboring. Uh, My buddy Jay Pathak wrote this book. Anyway, if anyone wants those. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Let's already pay attention to, like, the language John is using. Already, if you've been reading the Bible, your your lights should be going off on your dashboard. Third day. On the third day, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? By the way, that was a term of endearment. 
just before you like think funny about that, like why are you calling his mom woman? That was actually, a, yeah, in the original text. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I wish my mom had that kind of dynamic. <laughs> Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Take note of that. He filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, this isn't just a Jewish thing. Uh, when my wife and I, we, uh, we kind of, our wedding was pretty DIY, the bath, all ourselves. We just loved it. And it's like a nightmare for some folks. For us, it was like the best. Like hours of joy with giant whiteboards, planning every like thing out. We, had, we invited a lot of people to our wedding and we did not have a huge budget. So we had to figure out how to do things. So uh, my, we really wanted there to be wine at the, at the wedding. Um, and so we, uh, my uncle, as a sort of wine connoisseur, he picked out these bottles for every table for dinner, these nice bottles. And then we got two buck chuck, right? Trader Joe's wine, Charles Shaw, which by the way, is a, is just, it's, a great, it's a great wine. Can we just be honest about two buck chuck? Right, there's a holiness to that. I just learned the backstory to that. I'll share some other time. Uh, anyway, so we had two buck chuck and, uh, and that was what, like for the rest of the night. You could just go up. We had a buddy, a uh, friend of ours and she was um, like bartending and uh, would pour wine uh, for folks. And, and then we got, figured out a way to get Narragansett beer to sponsor our wedding, which was the best. So they just gave us a bunch of beer and we put like a sign up in the corner. <laughs> it was so dumb. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we had, uh, we had the wine. So, but you, you, you put the, the not so great wine after people, you know, they're dancing, they've had a little bit of wine already. It's not like their first taste. Like, oh, they're not really gonna, like, if it, the wine quality starts to slide a little bit, I'm not advocating mild drunkenness here. I'm just saying, you just start to loosen, you start to loosen up and, and your tongue starts to loosen up. Well, this was normal to a much greater degree in a Jewish wedding. You, you bring the best wine out first and then you bring the not so great wine out. And especially in this setting, it could be argued uh, they were well on their way at this point in the wedding. I mean that in every sense of the word. Take some, pour the water in, that did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. So Jesus turns this to wine. He did not realize where it had come from. So the servant doesn't realize Jesus just pulled like this, this sign. And though the servants had also drawn the water, knew though. Then he called to the bridegroom aside and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best until now. That's pretty sweet. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So that last line, this was the first of the signs. This is a a sign is this, a pointer to reality through which he revealed his glory. So he's pointing to something beyond himself. He's pointing to a bigger story. You can argue one writer says he's pointing to ultimate reality. And when he says he revealed his glory, glory is God's presence and person. Like the phrase like glory be to God. What really is being said in a Hebraic understanding of glory is this is like his weight, his presence, his personhood, like who and, and what God is. So this was a sign and a pointer that God is there. This is what God is like. The story is a pointer to the reality of what God is like. What's God like? He goes to a party, stays there till everyone's nice and toasty, and then he makes more, and he makes the good stuff. Joy is one of the central teachings of Jesus. John 15, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete, our teaching text today. We'll come back to that. John 16, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. John 17, the next chapter. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. Theology 101, we're told that Jesus is the fullness of God. That's a reach for some of you who aren't followers of Jesus. I understand that. For us, we actually believe that Jesus was like the design, the logos, the order. This is like when we look at Jesus, we are seeing the divine in flesh 
and blood. What people are trying to make sense of spirituality and what's at the center of the world, we believe it's found in Jesus. And so when Paul says the fullness of like the Father, the God, the divine is found in Jesus, we have to pay attention to things like he wants our joy to be complete. He wants our full measure of joy. He is like so after joy. He wants to give the joy. He's a joy giver. He's so full of joy and celebration. I'm going to wait till everyone is nice and on their way, and then I'm going to bring out the good stuff. Bring on the joy. The center of the universe is a God full of joy. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever been. Most beautiful place you've ever been. Just close your eyes for a minute. Think about if, I mean, I, I know half of you won't. We're in Providence, but the rest of you. What's <laughs> the most beautiful place you've ever been? Okay, just one or two people, just shout out. What? Jamaica. Hawaii. What island? Kauai. <laughs> what is it? Private islands in the, in the Keys. Can I, you take me? One more place. What? Mount Kilimanjaro. I've never been. Have you ever been? I've always wanted to go. All right. Now, think about the most, like, beautiful celebratory moment, like the happiest moment of your life. Take a moment and think about it. One or two of the happiest moments of your life. Like right then, if I could go back there. All right, shout out, a couple things. Birth of my children. Huh? Wedding, my wedding. Baptism. Surfing. Amen. I love this church. Baptism. Silence. Surfing. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's close to baptism. You just got to tip over the board and you're good. <laughs> yeah. Whatever God's relationship is with space and time, uh, it's different than mine and yours. And we're told that there's no place that God is not. So God is in that moment. It was in that moment. A joy-filled God. Those are those moments we often call like thin places. Feels like heaven's touching earth. Everything's in its right place. Right? We know those moments. These are moments where we're most in tune with how things are supposed to be and arguably how things are. Now you're all smart people and you know, well, this must mean that God's always there in the bad moments too, right? But we know God is, however you parse this out, is sovereign. And so God has an understanding of how even the most broken things, it's all gonna be put back together in some way even the most horrific things, even the ways God lets us choose death. He knows how the story ends. God is full of joy. This is what God is like. It makes sense then that Jesus has a vision for your life. Hear this. He has a vision for your life that you may have the full measure of joy. How does that make you feel? One of the things that Jesus has for you, desires for you, is that you would have the full measure of joy. I'm guessing some of you are like, yeah, I know he does. Look at my life this week. And some of you are like, he's not doing a great job. He wants that. That's cool. But this is the problem. We too often think of joy as almost like a water balloon. Like we're like waiting for like something to hit us. If God really loved this, if I was really gonna be full of joy, then something would happen to me. There'd be a moment. This would change. I would be like over every single time I sat down to do my Bible study. Every single time I got on the surfboard and took a moment just to give thanks. Every single time I fill in the blank, whatever your rhythms are, I just get blown away. Right, some people have that problem. Every time they get together in a, in a in like a home group, or every time they get to the Bible study, it's like, if 
if like spiritual apex, like epic breakthrough is not achieved in this moment, we haven't really experienced the presence of God. If there is not weeping and crying and the yelling and laughing, then there's been some problem here. And yeah, I, I don't think that that's actually the, like the delivery system so often. I wanna talk for about cultivating a joyful heart because this is at the center of becoming like Jesus, of being a disciple of Jesus, cultivating a joy-filled heart. So how do we do this? Richard Foster says, you develop the spiritual discipline of celebration, of celebration. This command runs through the New Testament, celebrating, and it's, it's, it's actually kind of cloaked a little bit. So it's, it's in this word, rejoice. So in the Greek, it's the verb form of the noun, joy. And so scholars argue that the, probably the best definition, in a sense, when they say rejoice, is like to celebrate. Because it's something you do with other people. And it has the semantic range of the idea of a meal and a table. So most of us don't think of joy, though, as a discipline, right? Anyone else think of joy as a discipline? Like something you can practice? Like, no, no, joy is this, I'm either joyful or I'm not. This is what some of us, we struggle because we're totally enslaved to our emotions. Because you can't control how you feel, correct? But you can control, most of us can control what we think. And we can control what we put into our mind. The spiritual discipline of self, of celebration. We actually have responsibility. Richard Foster says this, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our head. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. He's talking about setting your mind on joy. What we give our mental real estate to matters because our feelings flow from our thinking and our feelings flow from our acting. So what are you thinking about and what are you practicing? I love when people are surprised that they are pain avoidant and have low-grade anxiety when you calculate the amount of hours they sit in front of a screen and you wonder, why isn't God breaking through my anxiety? He's actually given you a whole lot of tools and practices, and this is how you're spending your time and your margin. I don't mean that to guilt anybody. I just mean, like, just the results are expected. In the same way, if you just sit around and like carbo load and never get to the gym. Or you say you're gonna try keto, but those french fries always look too good. Can I get amen? But there's that piece of pizza though. But keto, but there's that, just the one slice, I'll be okay. Anyone? No, no it's my own struggle. If your thoughts are on God, it's going to be to change things. You can will a thought life. Hear this, please. You can will a thought life that is curated in such a way that joy is the inevitable byproduct. You can hear, we hear this. You may not believe this. And this real quick is not like, like name it, claim it theology. We'll get into this in a minute for those of you worried. You can will a thought life that is curated in such a way that joy is the inevitable byproduct. Philippians 4, turn with me. Verse 4, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Celebrate in the Lord always. I will say it again. Be full of rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. Then Paul gives some exercise. How do we do this? That's great, Paul. That preaches. Verse six. So don't be anxious about anything. Well, that's not helpful. Anyone ever get that texted to you when you're full of anxiety? You got a friend who's like, hey, don't be anxious about anything. Like, thanks, buddy. I don't want to be here. But in every situation, by prayer and by petition, all right, now he's getting some details, and thanksgiving, 
present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. He's so confident in his practices around joy and peace and connectedness to the Father that he's like, you, you see, I'm doing, do it, because that's what it is to be an apprentice to Jesus. And the God of peace will be with you. He's saying, meditate on these things. Focus on these things. So the first thing I notice in this text, if you're taking notes, first one is surrender. Surrender. Surrender your illusion of control over to God. You've come to the place where surrender and illusion, you surrender the illusion of control. First and foremost, he releases outcomes to God. He releases, I can't control you. My like prayer I say over and over and over from the Sermon on the Mount is basically I need to entrust other people to God. As a pastor, I struggle with this. I just want everybody to be okay. Can everyone just be okay? If you can't be okay, call me. Call me, I want you to be okay. Be okay, if you're okay, then I'll be okay. It's one of the most difficult things in my spiritual growth that I've had to deal with. God loves you more than I do. I can't, I can't fix that right now. I may not be able to fix that ever. I need to entrust you to God or entrust that to God. Second, just give thanks. The second thing in this passage is he's thanksgiving. Work gratitude into everything. Focus your attention on what's good. If you're like most people, your mind gravitates towards the negative. There's so much science behind this. It's kind of overwhelming. And it all basically says the same thing that the Bible says. We're all pretty messed up when it comes to our minds. <laughs> it's like, we, this is just where we go. We have a penchant. Ten good things, you're going to, or nine, nine, nine great things, one bad thing, you're going to go to the bad thing. Our weeks are, are like, uh, one writer calls them chocolate-covered turds. It's all chocolate. It's mostly chocolate there, but... There's a turd in the middle. And so you're biting on a rich week of so much chocolate, that turd ruins everything. <laughs> That's the only thing anyone's going to remember from this sermon. Ten bucks. Right? That list, whatever's true, whatever's lovely, whatever's praiseworthy, whatever's excellent. We so often are thinking of the opposite of that list. We set our minds on the opposite of that list. And so much of this, right, has to do with even how we start our day. I want to give you some things that I've been working on and thinking about. So the worst way, in my mind, to start a day. There's no worse way to start a day than this. I wrote this down. You ready for this? Sleep with your phone next to you. Set the alarm on your phone so you wake up and you have to reach for your phone. It's the first thing you have to do because you've got to turn the alarm on. Roll over. Check that phone. Anyone text you? The boss up early, already sending emails. Check social media. She did what? Wow, they were out there. Man, let the FOMO hit in. News feed. Then go to your news feed. That Apple news feed, if those of you have iPhone, that is the worst thing that's happened to me in years. I've had a lot of bad things happen. That's the worst. Right? What's the number one question we're all asking when we flip to the news feed? Be honest. What did he do today? What did he say today? That's not a political statement. We can all agree, Republican, Democrat, he just is really smart. All right, I'm gonna fall over. What did he do today? I can't think of a better recipe for misery than that. So new discipline I'm starting. And if you would like, maybe you can't afford this, maybe I'm gonna bring him in next week, I'm gonna have him do this. Here's my new discipline. Stole this from a friend of mine. I'm gonna get a box. I'm gonna put it in a cupboard. I'm gonna make sure that my, it's just within earshot. So the only thing though that will ring is from family. You can set that on your phone. It's the only thing that'll ring is from family. 
put it in the box nine o'clock and I don't put it back on in the morning until I've spent time with Jesus and had a good cup of coffee. That's the plan. So that phone between 8, 30, 9 o'clock every night to whenever I head out the door, that phone is not on. You cannot let your phone like set your emotional equilibrium and you cannot let your news feed set your view of the world. You can't. Look, bad news sells 10 times more than good news. The press, for all the great things about having free press in our country, is capitalistic. It's trying to make money, and it makes money from reporting bad news. The only thing better than bad news, scientifically, is if there's some sort of celebrity gossip mixed in. So it's like fires in California, and then a Ben Affleck with his back tattoo is like walking through it. You know, like Justin Bieber is waving at the fire. That would be the only thing that would spike it higher, statistically. This is, this is important to know because there's a lot of good in the world. There's a lot of joy. I tell people all the time, I just so wish you could spend a day in my shoes. The stories I get to hear about the healing and redemption and life and love of Jesus that is exploding in this community. There are so many, and that's just us. This little crew in Providence, Rhode Island. This doesn't mean we turn our eyes away from injustice. I hope you know me well enough at this point. So no, this is not that. This is not about the privilege of ignoring the pain of the world and isolating yourself. This is not about that. This is saying, what am I going to set the tone of my day? What is the vision so as I charge into a day where I know I'm going to hit injustice, I know I'm going to see systemic racism, I know I'm going to see oppression and brokenness, I know I'm going to see my friends hurt, I know I'm going to see myself fall short of the glory of God over and over. My lens began with the blood of Jesus. My lens began with knowing the end story. My lens started out full of hope and gratitude and kindness that will actually move me to peaceful, redemptive action in the world and not just reactive anger. I won't be a burned out activist. I'll be somebody who can endure the long haul of justice. I'll be full and rooted in peace and joy. Don't let your phone set your emotional equilibrium. Let prayer set your emotional equilibrium. And let the word set your view of the world. I love this, and I say it probably every other week. I need new stories, but I just can't go back. I can't get past Dr. King saying, well, my dad used to beat this into my head. It was like, just let Dr. King's words. I've been to the mountaintop. He's telling people who are, who are feeling that like they are under the boot of the empire and of thinking. He's telling these people, I... I want you to know how it ends because it will give you life here and now. I and want you to know how the story ends because it will inform your hope and joy when you can't have that baby. It will inform your joy and hope when it looks like your marriage is falling apart. It will inform your hope when it looks like fill in the blank. And it will fill you with a sort of joy of heaven even here and now. We are tired and we cannot let, we cannot let like the world, I always hate that phrase, it's so sloppy, but we cannot let the culture around us shape. There's a study that just came out and it basically called most of the population of the United States, it had this uh, term and it called them the exhausted majority. It was like looking at all of the just the, 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 the insanity around our current cultural dialogue and divisiveness and tribalism. And so there's a group of people in the middle, which is most of us, the exhausted majority. Don't be that. Don't let the enemy sabotage your movement toward joy. So recap, surrender. Philippians 4, surrender the illusion of control. Two, pro tips. I feel like, I don't know what I feel like right now. Two, give thanks. Three, set your mind on the things above. And over time, you will become a joyful person. That's it. Nailed it, Andrew. Those three things. 
Those three things, surrender the illusion of control, practice that. You're not just going to do it tomorrow. It's going to be hard. Keep working on it. And trust, this has been the story of my life. Surrender the illusion of control. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Give thanks. Cultivate it. Find things to give thanks for and then do it. Like, Like say it out loud. Write it down. Give thanks. And three, set your mind on things above. Cultivate what you're letting into your mind. I can't think of a better way to practice the discipline of celebration. I can't think of a better way to practice the discipline of rejoicing than by eating and drinking. I can't think of a better one than the table. We read so much about Jesus around the table. The Torah commanded, like commanded, stop and throw a party and eat three times a year at a feast. Deuteronomy 14. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. So this is one of the tithes that you would give. Take 10% right out of the gate. This is an agrarian society. Take 10% and then do what with it? Some of them were give to the priest. Some of those give to the mission and movement. But this one was, ready for this one? Anyone know what this passage is? I'd be so impressed. What do they do with the tithe, Chris? Yeah, it says, eat the tithe. Right there, verse 23. That's not Andrew translation. Eat the tithe of your grain. New wine, olive oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord. Vegetarian, sorry, you can't come. At the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, Right? There's all these rules like where you go to worship in the temple and you're hiking. And if you've been blessed by the Lord, your God, blessed by the Lord your God, and you cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away. Notice if you can't get to the place where the feast is and you've done really well this year, this is like hedge fund manage your tithe. Then exchange your tithe for silver. These are instructions. And take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. So go to the party destination. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink. P.S. That literally means strong drink. Yes, whiskey is in the Bible. Hallelujah. Amen. This is what it says. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. There's our word. And celebrate. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns. What if we did this? What if we were to do this? <laughs> what if we were to pull 10%? Hey, we got a couple times. Be on top of what you already give to support the movement of the church, to make sure Andrew and his family can eat a little bit, to like see this movement go and reproduce more churches and make sure there are no needy among us to be. On top of all that, take another 10% off. Let's fly Chance the Rapper in here. Let's get north to, to, to cater like a big party for all of us. Bolt, do some pour overs. I don't know, ropes course. Trampoline, I want one of those trampoline things. Clearly I'm designing this party. Hey, just throw a party, throw a party. I don't know your view of God, and especially those of you who maybe came in here and you're a little overwhelmed by walking into a Jesus space like this. Is your vision of God the one who commands you to party? That's my God. There's another passage where literally he threatens death to these ancient Israelites. He's like, if you don't stop, you're basically dead already. Stop celebrate and make a rhythm of it practice it build it in like a workout schedule i want to end with this sorry i'm going late today the best way to celebrate is to eat and drink with your friends this is all i'm simply saying in this book i was just reading someone else summarize this i have not read the book hacking the american mind anyone actually read this the hacking of the american mind this is not a christian book Basically, the, the point of the book apparently is they've, he, we've conflated pleasure with happiness. Pleasure is something that leads to addiction. Pleasure is something that's like a momentary blip, right? This is about the chemicals that are going off in our head. 
Basically, you, 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 too much pleasure leads to addiction, and there's no such thing as too much happiness. And the argument is essentially like government media, they've sort of, because of this capitalistic system we're in, have conspired to hack your mind to give you pleasure fixes. This is just how we're wired because it makes the most money because it gets the most response. And so his fix, not a Christian book at all, is basically you need religion and you need a community to do life with. It's just fascinating. Get your people together and eat together. It's like this epic book. I just like thumbed through it. Like I just got it on Kindle. And I'm like going through it and it's just dire. You can just tell from the, like, the titles. Like, okay, this guy does not have a positive outlook. And you go ahead and you read the last chapter and it's like, how do you fix this? Eat and drink together. And all of a sudden, you're like, brand new sociologist, super hip writer right now on the TED Talk scene is sounding like an ancient rabbi that we call Lord. Our practice this week is simple. Get together with others and eat. A quick note, I keep mentioning jokes about liquor. This is not like an advocate for mild drunkenness. I didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. I grew up in a really healthy like family around alcohol have a glass of wine, like really, really safe and simple. Learned to like, my uncle gave me this long pitch, like you never get drunk, man. It disrespects the, the alcohol. So this is not some argument for that. When we party in the kingdom, it looks different than partying everywhere else. All right, just a quick reminder. And some of you have made the choice, like I can't go near that. I don't do that. Maybe you have alcoholism in your family. Like we applaud that. And there's plenty of things to celebrate with outside of that. All right, just quick note, just need to say that. <laughs> that okay? You with me? There's a world of difference between a party in the world and a party in the kingdom. Federico Fellini, Brad Rohr gave me this quote, says this, you can all pretend to be cynical and scheming, but when we're faced with purity and innocence, the cynical mask drops off. We can all pretend to be cynical and scheming and dour and middle of the road, but when we're faced with purity and innocence, the cynical mask drops off. Look, when we're confronted with Jesus, this is why I love that quote, when we're confronted with Jesus, when we worship, when we say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, I just want to thank you, Lord. When we sing that of our Lord, it begins to just knock down the cynicism. We can feel it almost in the, a moment. The enemy wants to make God into something he is not, and our God is a God of joy. Our God is a God of joy. Last thing. The culture of celebration is to be a culture, is to be the culture of this house, of this church. When we look through the, that famous text in Luke 15, right, where we have the tax collectors and sinners are gathering around to hear Jesus, and they're all muttering, right, this man comes to eat and drink and eat with sinners, they're all muttering. He tells these then three stories, right? He tells a story about the sheep. He says, and when he finds the sheep, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Rejoicing. He comes together and he tells these stories. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This all sets up the prodigal son story, which most of you know. The third time, the third time he makes the point of it ends with a feast. The father said to his servants, right, right when the prodigal son, the son who's burned all the bridges and ran away, comes home, the father, the God figure says, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son is in the field when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. That's what the father's house is like. That's what the house of God should be like. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he was back home safe and sound. The older brother became pissed off, angry, and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. Even the angry, cynical older brother, the father leaves the house and runs again to his kids. That's what God's like. Hey, hey, I want to plead with you. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never obeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. We all know how much a young goat lights up a party. But when, <laughs> but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Favorite verse of the Bible. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. The culture of celebration is the culture of this house. It wasn't in the older brother's heart. Is it in your heart? Are you cynical? Are you constantly measuring up? Do you have a chip on your shoulder like everybody else got it good, but I don't? The culture in the house didn't change. The culture in the house is joy, is celebration, is extra wine, is good news. And the culture of the oldest son who lives in the house didn't experience it, not because of the father, but because of him. Can you hear me on that? Your disconnection of the joy of the father has everything to do with you and nothing to do with him. I pray that doesn't sound like a, as I'm pointing my finger at you. I pray that doesn't sound like I'm trying to beat anybody up. I hope it sounds like freedom. Right? God isn't far off or distant from you, thus causing you lack of joy. You're far off. You're distant. So go back and let's look, let's take that and get into it. And get excited about, okay, where are the rhythms in my life got to change? Where do I need to practice Thanksgiving? I am a bit older, brother, aren't I? If you're not sure, ask your friends. They'll tell you. What needs to change? What needs to be cultivated? What joy do I need to practice? What things need to shift? I'm taking this moment not feeling bad. I'm taking this moment like, okay, if that's true, I need to give thanks. I need to relinquish my control because I can't control everything. I need to set my mind on the things above, things of beauty and truth and goodness of God. Okay, here we go. Here we go. This is a book called The Power of Moments. I swear I'm finishing now. I'll bite the band up just to make sure that happens. Book called The Power of Moments. Here's what the book is about. It's the psychology of how to build moments that last a lifetime. Stay with me. One last thing. The psychology of how to build moments that last a lifetime. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. So it points this out. This is why this is so interesting to me, this book. The power of moments. When you get ready to celebrate, the writer makes this observation. There will always be resistance and cynicism. But always be whenever that you're trying to like cultivate a moment of joy. Any like big joy people, like you're the party starter, seven on the Enneagram, whatever it is for you, like you're like the fired up people. And you're like, you know, there's always that moment. You're looking at them over across the way. Yeah, I'm looking at you ones. He's looking at you and you're just going like, oh, yeah, you're gonna, there's something like you wanna say here. There's always like a moment of resistance. And this is the line. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Isn't that good? Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. It's too expensive. It's too expensive. It's gonna take too long. It's two. It's two, whatever. Anyone like two people? You know who you are. It's okay. You have a lot of other good gifts. Right, the soul-sucking voice of reasonable. It's like, get behind me, Satan. The love of God is not reasonable. The love of God's not reasonable. That's why we rejoice. That's why we give thanks. That's why in a moment we're going to sing, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. I just want to thank you, Lord, and we're going to sing it like 100 times. The love of God isn't reasonable. He's worthy of our praise and worthy of our thanksgiving. 
And if we don't feel that, it so often is because of a disconnection that we have between realizing our lostness and his foundness. We don't realize the treasure that we have. God is unreasonable. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonable. The church can't be reasonable. We have to celebrate the goodness of God to excess. To excess. Thomas Aquinas says this, no one can live without delight. And that's why a man deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. You following that? Isn't that interesting? Aquinas is making the argument that like part of the reason you see people kind of go over to like other patterns that are like distorted loves, indulging in things that aren't ultimately good for them, is actually because they don't experience the joy of the Lord. It's not like, oh, you're not really disciplined enough. It's like, no, 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 Like, don't, you don't, Coachella is great and all, but you don't need, like, you don't need Coachella because you, you got the family of God. Now, you can do both, let's be clear. And Jesus is always at Coachella. But, we need this house. May it be marked by celebration and joy. And so this week, as we eat and as we drink, as we gather at Thanksgiving, many of you opening up, I'm just gonna put these down here. We, as many of you are opening up your homes for others to eat at. Many of you are gonna walk into a difficult family situation. I know it's actually a hard time of year. What will it look like to cultivate the joy of the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord? So what time is it? How are we doing? Let's just, we're a little late, but we're okay. We're good. We're gonna take 10 minutes and we're gonna sing together. And we're gonna give thanks together. And so if you wanna stand and sing, if you wanna come forward and take communion, I wanna invite the ushers that can come up in a moment. You take that bread and you dip it in that cup and you give thanks. Hey guys, this week's a cheers week, okay? Could we do cheers this week? Sometimes when you come up, you hear your body, Christ's body broken and blood poured out, which is good. It's a reminder of what Christ has done. But sometimes you need to hear the, the end game of his body broken, his blood poured out for the, for the forgiveness of sins, for the healing of the world, for the great banquet that we're told the end will look like. We're gonna just, you're gonna hear the words spoken to you. Cheers. Thanks be to God. So I pray in this moment, I, let me pray for us. Spirit of God, would you descend on us in some way, in some powerful way? Would you move in the hearts of those that are cynical, those that are overflowing? Would you just uh, like point their overflow to those of us that are hurting? Because we need each other to carry each other. My brothers and sisters who struggle with mental illness, who just deal regularly with just the, the brokenness of their own biology. Oh, Lord, I, I feel for that fight, Lord. And we know that you, Lord, are powerful and you are good. And I've seen you carry on your backs, my brothers and sisters who have just inherited uh, just such anxiety in their lives, Lord. Would you turn this moment right now into a little Holy Spirit party? As we hear Jocelyn just sing this over us, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. I just wanna thank you, Lord. As we hear this old melody that's been sung for, I don't know how long, centuries, the song's old. God, would you speak? Would you speak, Lord? In Jesus' name, everybody said? Everybody said? Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Come take communion. Let's take a few minutes together.